Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm speaking with Dr. Illis Panigalipo about cognition. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Beth. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Uh, yeah, for sure. So I was uh, born and raised in, in, in Europe. So I got my education, um, my bachelor's and my master's education uh, back in Europe. And then I was um, happy uh, to uh, get a PhD uh, position at Wollongong, uh, where I had the opportunity to study um, under the supervision of uh, Daniel Hutto and Michael Kishoff. And mostly my um, thesis was on the philosophy of cognition or philosophy of mind, um, that kind of thing. And um, it was um, amazing to be in Wollongong. Um, It was an amazing experience. And um, so even before I finished my PhD, I got offered a position at uh, the Berlin School of Mind and Brain at Humboldt uh, University in Berlin. Um, and that's uh, where I've been ever since I finished my PhD. I am a, a lecturer um, on philosophy of mind, philosophy of science, philosophy of AI um, at um, the Berlin School of Mind and Brain in, in Berlin. So that's a, a little bit of um, um, an intro. Uh, so what was it that inspired you to study cognition? Oh, um, yeah, I can't it, I can't really remember. But one thing I know is that back, so it was growing up in Portugal. And one cool thing about uh, the Portuguese education system, at least I think, is that um, philosophy, regardless of which area of study you go to, Philosophy in the secondary um, uh, school is a mandatory subject. So all 
the people are educated with philosophy, which is really wonderful for critical thinking and ethical skills and all of those kinds of things. Um, and I remember that during my philosophy classes, um, I, I I started asking these questions about the mind, but mostly perception. I started being quite intrigued about can we ever have um, an objective perspective about something in the world, whether that's possible, right? Whether whether that's conceivable or thinkable. So I started like, even with, though I didn't have any philosophical skills, training or tools, out of intuition, I started thinking about whether what I was thinking, which now I know, but back then I didn't, was about the dichotomy between objectivity and subjectivity and how you can think about, for example, art, or morals uh, or perception, whether these things have objective properties or subjective properties. So that's what I was going on uh, in my uh, intuition back then. And then I started having these conversations with my 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 philosophy teachers back then at the at the, at the high school, and then they started realizing because they knew that I wanted to do psychology. I wanted to become a clinical psychologist and they started having these conversations with them and they started noticing that, well, it seems that you are very inclined to philosophy as opposed to psychology. So you should give it, give that a thing. So then eventually I did. And uh, yeah, and then my life started academically unfolding towards uh, philosophy. So then I, I, I graduated in philosophy and because what was interesting me the most was philosophy of mind, I thought that I needed some uh, more uh, training in those surrounding fields in, in philosophy of mind, such as neuroscience, for example, or cognitive science um, or artificial intelligence. So then I went on and I also received training in neuroscience and cognitive science such that I could um, be a better philosopher of mind. So I thought that that would be uh, important uh, for me to inform my work as a philosopher of mind. So that's a little bit of the trajectory. Yeah. Um, would you have a definition of cognition? Mm. That would be sort of um, the million-dollar question. So that is precisely the question that divides the different theories and traditions in philosophy of mind ever since uh, Plato uh, and Aristotle in the Western tradition and, of course, um, in other traditions, um, different uh, philosophers will come up. But that's mostly the question that will um, divide uh, theories. And in the contemporary philosophy of mind, um, you can think of uh, sort of like, I would say, three ways, which roughly put would sort of um, come up in three different theories. So some people would um, take a sort of like a, a, a mind machine analogy, right? In which case you would think that the mind comes down to can be defined as um, the brain. So the brain is that machine. In that case, you're being you are endorsing um, a tradition that is called reductionism. So then you think, well, cognition is the brain at work. So whatever you want to explain about cognition or cognitive behavior, you have to go to the brain for answers, and the brain will provide you that answer. And on the very extreme of this reductionism tradition, you find um, materialism, eliminativism which is a theory put forward by uh, the Churchlands, Paul and Patricia Churchland. So that's the very extreme is like cognition is the brain at work. All the answers are in the brain. 
And then you, you have a sort of more like weak embodiment kind of approach where you say, well, um, cognition is in the brain, but then you bring in the body to do certain kind of like uh, epistemic work to resolve and explain cognitive behavior. You bring in the body into this conversation. But I call it weak embodiment because the body there is considered to be part of this machine. So it's an extension of this machine that is the brain, which is why I'm calling it weak embodiment. And here I'm thinking of theories such as Andy Clark predictive processing, for example, which is very popular um, at the moment. And for the last 10 years, it's been quite popular. So the brain is still the machine and the body becomes an extension of this predictive processing of information. So those are sort of like seen as reductionist and um, sort of like information processing based on a certain kind of mind-machine analogy. And then you have other theories that come from different traditions and philosophy of mind, which are or could be said to be more closer to Buddhism or Buddhist philosophy, um, as well as phenomenology or pragmatism. And those are seen, they are quite sort of like more recent in cognitive science. They've been around and are well established for a long time, both in Western and Eastern philosophy. Um, but more recently, 20 years ago, we started talking about something called embodied cognition. And then that spread out uh, and we made a family. So now there's a family called the e-cognition because there are so many e's. So the first one is embodied cognition, which is mostly influenced by um, phenomenology uh, and pragmatism. And then we also have nativism, uh, for example. And here we have also a diversity of approaches where um, there's a one kind of inactivism that is very influenced by um, biology and a concept in biology that is known as autopoiesis. And then you have also Buddhism inter uh, influences or uh, even Ludwig Wittgenstein's uh, philosophies. That's inactivism. This is just like a sort of an overview. And the difference with this e-cognition, what they bring as a new sort of concept is that cognition does not come down to information processing of the computational kind. So there are other aspects to cognitive behavior that are not uh, explainable or nor are they ontologically computational processes. So how does cog cognitive development affect learning? Okay, so that's um that's it's almost like um it's almost like you can't really separate them, isn't it? Because um cognitive development is learning, right? In in all aspects and, and, and levels of that we can think of. So you're born into this world, almost like in the Heidegger kind of expression, you're thrown into the world, in a world that is already social. So you're not learning or developing, growing into or within a sort of like an encapsulated or a capsule. No, you are already in a social cultural environment and setting. And from that moment that you're thrown into the world, just to use Heidegger expression, um, that since that moment, you are already developing, you are already uh, learning and you're learning so many things. You you are interacting, navigating the world, even if it's like an infant um, crossing a room to reach a toy or to go hug a parent or something like that. The, that kind of like interaction and navigation of the environment is already learning. Um, 
So what is learned there is you navigate and use your body to navigate the environment and you observe the patterns, the consequences of those movements as you interact with the environment. So right there at the very beginning that you're already developing, of course, uh, you are learning. So I would say that those can't be really separated. Development is learning. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So what are the factors affecting cognitive development? Well, I would say that um, the most important um, factors are is the social cultural environment. So I am not a nativist. Uh, I do not believe that um, people are born with a certain uh, a hardwired uh, pack. I think that um, we are like sponges as we um, are thrown into the world and we start developing. This development is profoundly permeated and influenced by our social cultural environment. So the social cultural environment profoundly shapes our identities um, in however ways that we develop. And during development, um, everything that we do, the ways that we interact with the world are going to be profoundly um, influenced by the social cultural setting that we happen to be um, enculturated with. So I think that culture plays a profound and fundamental role in shaping cognition. And by that, I mean in shaping our identities. And then um, as you develop in a certain social cultural environment, of course, you gain more critical thinking or more um, different kinds of social skills. And um, you can engage with that environment in certain ways where um, you continue to share certain practices, rituals, ways of thinking, language, and all of that as being part of a community. But and by that, when by that you can for you can, for example, reinforce certain kinds of cultural patterns, but you can also challenge them, right? You can also challenge certain social cultural pa patterns. So what I mean is that culture is pr profoundly affects and influences cognition and everything that we do and are, but culture is also something that is not static. We must take co-responsibility by the social cultural patterns and communities that we are part of and practices that we engage with. So it's something that is also dynamic. So it's quite interesting to think about um, almost sort of like a dis to think about a community or a social cultural setting as almost this kind of like distributed cognition. So swarm intelligence kind of, where we cannot disengage ourselves from the responsibility that we as individuals co-construct those communities, co-construct those social cultural settings. We have that responsibility. And at the same time, it flips back to affect who we are um, as individuals. So I think that culture is extremely important in the shaping of cognition. Yeah, that brings me to my next question of, of why is it so important to study cognition? Well, um, uh, yeah, I would say that there are different um, there are different uh, reasons why and and I would I would love to stay here for for the rest of the day discussing this because favorite topic. But let me just think about the relevant ones. Uh, so for one, you have, of course, uh, development and this 
this topic that we were just touching upon, which is one uh, major topic of my research, how culture shapes our identities um, for better or for worse and how to deal with it. So that's, I think it's quite important to understand how the importance of a social cultural environment and our responsibility in co-building, co-constructing this social cultural environment. So that is really important for um, developmental um, issues as well as mental health to create a better society, a society that is more inclusive, diverse, and um, and that is more um, and and that there is more sort of like well being in the societies of the future that we we build. So mental health and well being are tremendous um, tremendously important. So that's one thing. Um, and then you have other um, the reasons, such as we are now building a ever more artificial intelligence, kind of like permeated kind of world. Of course, we've been engaging with technology through the history from sticks and stones ever since we started engaging with uh, the world by modifying the environment around us to make it more suitable to our uh, human needs. Um, but now we are um, coming into this uh, artificial intelligence kind of like era. And that's slightly different because now we're going to have these gadgets that we are we don't necessarily just manipulate them, but they also learn about us and interact with us. And that's the kind of environment that we are building. So then questions such as augmented cognition and how does that um, sort of like engaging in social, um, in digital social environments, smart environments and neurotechnologies and all of those kinds of things that come up, then how does those um, gadgets and environments are going to shape, again, who we are, not only as a human species, but also our experience as individuals? All right, so could you explain about the connection between memory and cognition? Well, uh, yes, for sure. Um, so memory is considered um, one cognitive function, is con considered a cognitive function. And um, there are many different theories about how memory works, of course. Um, some might think in more computationalist kind of views, the ones that I referred to previously, um, which is sort of like you have, you know, those kind of like mental pictures stored somewhere in the brain. And then whenever you need them, then you go and you retrieve them and you get them and you, ha ha, okay, here is my memory. So that's the more computationalist kind of way of thinking or understanding memory. That's not kind of, that's not my, my, my way of seeing it. I see a memory as something that is much more dynamic than a stored file that you have in an old computer. So I think of it as uh, relieving certain experiences. And, and it's interesting because I always have in mind Heraclitus philosophy. So this ancient philosopher in Greece. And what he says is that everything flows or pentarei, everything flows, which means that you can have, never um, bath in, or bathe in the same river twice because the river has changed and you have changed i think about memory like that so i think that um memories they change because in the sense that the person that is remembering 
something, an event that happened in the past, that person has changed. So then when you retrieve, go and revisit and relieve, re-experience that moment in time that is in the past, that happened to be in the past, you might remember it um, in different, slightly different ways, um, of course. Um, so I think of memory as something that is a cognitive function that is quite dynamic um, and quite of an experiential kind of thing, other than uh, it being a mental picture that you retrieve um, and then just present. So I think more of like a memory as some as thinking about um, experiences that we have in the past as navigating the past again. So almost like, a, uh, if I may say, time traveling. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's very true. So could you explain about the basin models of brain and cognitive function? Yeah, for sure. So that's quite popular at the moment. Um, I actually just um, just finished editing a special issue on the Bayesian brain. Um, and it comes from, again, this, this more computationalist approach um, to the mind, Um not necessarily extending to the mind. Some people do. So basically what Bayesian inference or the Bayesian brain is, so Bayesian is just a tool of statistics. So it's the base theorem. And basically what it says is as simple as this, that given the amount of information that I have, uh, how do I incorporate new information in the information that I already have? And then you pull out the equation and you use the equation and then you know, how to integrate new information in the model with the information that you already have. So that's all the base theorem does. Um, what happens is that we use that um, Bayesian statistics, Bayesian tool to understand the causal connections in the brain. So then we apply this tool to um, develop a model of how the brain works. So like, how does this part connect to this part? So it's basically like a sort of like a topology of causality. How is it that this part is activated if this part is activated? So then we want to understand the causal connections between um, activations and the connecting connections in the brain. Then we develop these uh, models that use Bayesian statistics, which is called predictive coding. So predictive coding are these um, models of brain activity. And that's all fine and good in neuroscience, uh, and especially in brain data analysis, that's all fine and good. So that's the neuroscience part of it. Now, what happens in philosophy of mind is that um, a lot of times we apply the best technology of uh, computer science applied to the brain, and then we literally claim that that's exactly how things are with the mind because we are doing that um, sort of reductionist kind of like move, which is that I mentioned before, which is to consider the mind as reducing to the brain. So then see how it happens if the mind reduces to the brain and if the brain is explainable through a model that uses Bayesian inference, then the mind is Bayesian. That's how sort of like the argument would unfold. So that could be seen for some people as a reductionist view. For e-cognitive science, it definitely is seen as a too reductionist view and is not endorsed by uh, e-cognitive science. Um, but for 
more people sitting more on the reductionist, more like endorsing uh, views that are um, more like mind machine analogy, then uh, that would be a very fair, um, plausible uh, theory of the mind. What implications are there for the methods used to study brain and cognitive function? Um, well, the, the implications, well, I would say that you can think of them uh, in philosophy of mind. I would say that there's where philosophy of mind can have a very um, important role is to precisely do this critical thinking of um, thinking about uh, the theories that are endorsed in order to set up experiments or to uh, set up um, a computational model to do some modeling as well as the interpretation of the results. So that's one part of it, is where um, you should use the best critical thinking and reasoning skills in order to dispute, think about, uh, question and critically analyze the techniques uh, or the assumptions that are made behind or before the techniques or methods implemented in um, experimental design, as well as computational modeling, um, as well as interpretation of results. So that's one thing that is really important to do. Um, and then the other thing is to think about what kind of claims you get to make from a model. So I'm gonna rephrase this now in a more philosophical terms. What kind of, if any, ontological claims do you get to make from a computational model. So I'm just gonna give a very uh, quick, simple example. So when we do um, develop and code a model of the brain, such that what I want to do is I look at the data that I got from, a brain, from my brain scans, I look at the data and then I want that to, I want to create or develop a model that is going to behave, that is going to run in a way that it outputs the results that like somewhat match the, the results that I got from the scanner. Because what I want to know is what activity happened in the brain that gave rise to those results, right? So that's why I do use a simulation, right? But that is a simulation that is a of a, just a one part, like just one bit of the brain, right? So we need to be very humble about an understanding that it's just a simulation and it's just a part of a brain, right? So now I have my, my model. And let's say that my model actually in the end outputs or somewhat, somewhat like the output of my model kind of like matches somehow the data that I collected. So I can say as a scientist that I have a viable model of that particular part of the brain. But what we do usually is we are uh, much more um, less humble in philosophy of mind because we want to sit on the truth of things, not the viable, the truth of things, right? So then what we, what we do is in, in philosophy of mind, we come, out, come up with claims such as, well, I used Bayesian inference in this model um, to understand this part of uh, the story of the brain. Therefore, uh, the mind is Bayesian. Therefore, we can reduce all cognitive behavior activities and diversity and levels of abstraction that are involved in cognition to that particular model 
of that particular part of the brain. And this is a huge ontological jump. So that's what we need to be um, to be careful with is that um, we the the history of philosophy of mind has been like kind of like written as in like we grab the toolkit that comes from the best technology of our time. So back in Fodor's time, it was Turing machines, and then Fodor came up and said, "What if the mind is a Turing machine?" And then on we went twenty years of mind being a Turing machine. That was it. Then uh, we had a new, better technology, which was parallel distributed processing. So then connectionism inspired theories come up and be like, wait a minute. What if the mind is a parallel distributed processor? Aha, now we have it, right? So then off we went. And and now we do have, and I, I do not want to diminish because we do have very good um, understanding of the brain as neural networks by virtue of the, that computational power. What I what I want to raise here is just that do we get to make ontological claims about the mind? If we do have a model whose, star, whose target is a part of the brain, do we get from that part of the brain to make ontological claims about the whole totality of aspects and diversity and styles that are involved in cognitive behavior? That sounds a bit reductionist to me and a bit of a stretch. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really, really a fascinating subject. Thanks so much for coming onto the program today. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. I just absolutely love to talk about these things. Um, thank you. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. That's great. Well, that's all we have time for. Hope you've enjoyed the program and been given plenty of food for thought.